Hmm. Yeah, I, I I met this like um on the train up here. I met this literal hedge fund manager. He was like twenty one. Looked like he'd never shaved in his life, but he was a multi-millionaire who had met David Graeber and talked to him about Bitcoin. Uh, the hedge fund manager was majorly in favour of Bitcoin. Uh, David Graeber, it seems like, was not. And this <laughs> this uh, millionaire Richie Rich child was like um, trying to make it seem that he had like owned David Graeber, a Yale professor, one of the foremost anthropologists of our age by like showing how bitcoin was going to make um everything better for everyone which and it turns out it did because everyone's rich off bitcoin now but, it's true uh, we're all we're all rocking that bitcoin money yeah got the guy have you crypto what really sucks what really sucks is i don't think we're on the downward slope of bitcoin's rise in prominence i don't think it'll make anything better but i also don't think it's gonna start dissipating no that's just that's the thing i like in the first couple of years i would have thought it would that was like its critical moment and if it was it was either going to be big or nothing and it's become like big in a way like actual um hedge funds are buying it now but it's also like it's not going to replace real money because it's pretend computer money yeah fun fact there's a lot of um Oh, you go on. Oh, this is a good one because I had uh, another friend um, who lives in London. In fact, he bought about two hundred Bitcoin when it was like a dollar each, and he spent eighty on a year's supply of Cadbury's cream eggs, and um, <laughs> a further twenty on some new glasses. Uh, he bought a, like a flat screen TV, and basically pissed away all of his like bitcoins because at the time it was one dollar one bitcoin and he was it was basically an alternative to just using money and made him feel special and uh yeah he he would have had at the peak i think around uh three million uh dollars equivalent in bitcoin jesus god (laughs) and he he, (laughs) i must he must like every time he sees a cream egg he must get like ptsd symptoms (laughs) that must be horribly painful to you know be in the sweet style you're gonna get you're gonna get a nice pack of monster munch uh, a curly whirly and then you see a um cabbage cream egg there and just start spasming on the floor because you <laughs> you could like own multiple houses in london and a lamborghini out, out of your <laughs> but you pissed it away to feel special so Graeber, really, really smart bloke. 
Uh, yeah. In, and not in the way that this book or any of his work is difficult to follow at all. Maybe a few of his anthropological papers from early in his year are a bit more technical, but this is so easy. You could give it to your grandmother to read. Just took me about like four hours to read this book. It was it was nothing, and um, and it's okay. Let's let's just like summarize this one first because it's pretty easy to summarize because he's summarized it already. Um, in 2013, I believe it was, he wrote an essay called um, On the Phenomena of Bullshit, Bullshit Jobs. It was published on like a little uh, anarchist website. Um, I forget the name of it, but it, it wasn't big, but it the essay took off big. It was translated into, into like 20-something languages. It was linked to in The Guardian and all these different places. It, it was a big essay. And it's pretty obvious why. And that's because it was talking about the around 40% of jobs that people have that are totally pointless, that produce nothing uh, to the world or even to the companies that... Um, employ people to fix things that shouldn't be broken in the first place or just to fill desks to make middle managers feel special. And a ton of people, myself included, and probably about 40, 50, maybe even as high as 70% of people who are listening to this are going to like relate to that because as David Graeber, not Professor Graeber shows in this, um, bullshit jobs are getting more common and they're getting more bullshit. There's not even a attempt to hide some of this stuff anymore. Um, and they're in the private sector and in the public sector and in academia, um, where David Graeber is, he's at the London School of Economics, um, go football team. Um, and he, he does a really good job of establishing what a bullshit job is, establishing the four subclasses of bullshit jobs, um, warrior, ranger, thief, and druid, and um, yeah. and uh, being an anthropologist by trade, he has conducted quotes unquote field interviews via Twitter, because that's where the real world is, and he has come up with a lot of people talking uh, very personal stuff sometimes about how their bullshit jobs affected them. Uh, they're like depression, anxiety, sometimes even PTSD they get from being in these situations. And um, it's, it's come up with a, a really good book, providing you haven't read the initial essay that it was based on, because it's at around two, 250 pages, 290 something, I think. It's... Um, it, it circles the ideas in the original essay a lot without adding a whole lot to them except supporting evidence in the form of the um, interviews with people and uh, a, kind of a little bit of wheel spinning, which ironically makes the writing of this book a bullshit job. <laughs> and I don't want to say it's that because not... if, if you're listening to this, uh, Ms. P Professor Graeber, love your work. And I loved reading this book. And I I want to say nothing but good things about it, but I think because 
because that um, initial essay hit me at the exact right time in my life when I was first getting into real, true bullshit jobs. Um, and it's, yeah, it stuck with me to the point that when I was reading through this, there was um, not a whole lot that I was getting out of it, except in the way, um, I think in uh, George Orwell 1984, he talks about how some of the best books tell you what you already know. And this tells me what I already know. And I think I would have already known this on like a gut level, like in my heart, because um, that's where my guts are. It's a long story. Um, I would have known this stuff. Horrible, horrible accident at birth. Uh, struck by a moving train, and they had to uh, reorder all of his internal organs. Yeah. Because uh, he has a hole, whereas, um, whereas like stomach and intestines uh, would be. It's just a big hole. You can put your hand right through it shoot basketballs through it but yeah yeah that's the gut relocation that's why this isn't on youtube i'm physically disgusting to the point where um it like instantly destroys people's sanity to see me it's like a kind of lovecraftian monster my entire we record um, without the video we record without the video on because i uh i would throw up otherwise everyone would my uh, biology yeah. is completely linear it's just a sequence of organs in uh in, in step um we, we're going to do body horror next week, but uh, that's just to give you a little taster of... Uh, <laughs> yeah, because I... A little tease. Yeah, a little, little tease. And, or you can go watch Videodrome and really get into it. But um, That's the Marvel Cinematic Universe-style Easter egg, hinting at some upcoming content. Yeah. we should. I'll, I'll move it to the end. Like After the after the end song, <laughs> I'll, there'll be a... Oh, my God, I actually do that. <laughs> Exactly, yeah. It'll just like slowly fade up. And then... An after credits teaser. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> should do that at a, at a shared universe. I'll, I'll like put some uh, links to like some other podcasts I like in the. In the, in the, in the... It come up and it's like uh, the end of the first Avengers, but like someone from Struggle Session will just look around and be menacing like Thanos. Um, anyway, bullshit jobs. Uh, so, um, I first, I first ran into the essay at a similar, uh, the, the initiating essay at a similar time in my life. So, um, dropped in 2013. Um, at that point, uh, every American, and I think pretty much any like internet connected international leftist will know the the feeling after Occupy dissipated was pretty dire. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a lot of anger. This is also around the same time that a lot more attention was being paid to uh, police violence against uh, communities of color. Um, so there was a sense that all this forward momentum had been lost or was being suppressed. Uh, we were in our second term in America um, with Obama, which had soured in the mouth of leftists quite a bit um, for very understandable reasons. Um, and also, I was at the tail end of a really agonizing seven-year period of getting my bachelor's degree that had like, a mental breakdown in it, had alcoholism, you know, all, all the hallmarks of, of that. And that was right when this essay hit. And the reading the initial essay and grappling with with the feeling of having lost all that momentum from Occupy and witnessing 
what felt like an increase in police violence, but was more just an increase in visibility of it. The sense of like, what do I want to contribute to the world and making sort of the knowing choice that I would rather be a nobody than enter that brutal game. Like it was, it's hard to this, this statement will make more sense right now, five years after the essay and up at the, um, publication of the book uh, built off of it. The essay was big in left spaces. Like that's mm. why it blew up. Um, it, it got passed around like wildfire and it was, it was like a real, it felt like a real um, anarcho commune uh, like dissemination process. It was just people who cared about you and had similar thoughts going, yo, read this. Um, yeah. So it, it like, which, <laughs> which makes your point, extra ironic that um so i was glancing at some like some other reviews and and critiques of the book that tends to be the general consensus is that it's a good book and it proves its point but um does so by not elaborating on its point by just ending like or by just having like sheets of corroborating data points Mm. to the point where it's like i get it you're right yep Oh, more? Okay, good. I already agree with you now. Um. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Uh, there was a lot of data in here. Administrative growth of public and private institutions between 1975 and 2005. There's, there's a lot of graphs, a lot of uh, creation of exam managerial. There's process sheets in that are from bullshit jobs. And um, I think because of, the, yeah, because of the experience of this bullshit jobs is so universal, uh, like the knowing how many administrators were at public colleges in 1975 versus 2005 isn't going to tell you much because if you've been to a college or if, especially if you taught in a college you know this very well like i could probably i would have known it during the four years i spent in college it's yeah everyone knows that management and inefficiency and all that dilbert stuff is has skyrocketed and continues continues to because capitalism is spinning its wheels. All the um, low hanging fruit has been plucked already. It's we're looking at extinction within our lifetimes, and we're just kind of you know got to keep you know playing a violin solo on the deck of the Titanic for a little while, and that involves being like the quality assurance process manager for a company that doesn't really do anything and um yeah it, it's it's a weird thing of having a book that's that's so good and often very emotional often like hits you where you live and work very well feels kind of unnecessary but um and one of the only additions um is a kind of prescription to how to fix this but it's it's a bit uh, that could have been a half of the book rather than the the last couple of pages the prescription as is so common now is a universal basic income and i like that idea a lot i think it's it's one of those ones where if you fuck it up that's a horrible dystopia and that's kind of what silicon valley ubi advocates want if you get it right, then it's 
a really nice stepping stone to potentially a post-capitalist, post-state society, which is weird because it's yeah, it the, is the state giving out capital to people, but you know. It is a really fun... So I've been seeing a lot of critiques um, recently of universal basic income, and I think they're fair critiques, but I think they're um, sort of inherently um, anti-communist in that some of the critiques were that if we release them, they'll hit primarily white spaces first, which I fear, given current government, would be true mm-hmm. and would be used to like cut um, social welfare programs um, because of the presence of them. Yeah. But... Then we start, which is, I think, a fair critique, but it's more a mechanical one, because I don't think you can have a functioning a functioning left politic that is non-liberal and not have a universal basic income. I think that goes, it's one of the few things where, like, both Marx and Proudhon would agree on it, and when you get the two big antagonists, or the two big antagonistic forces of uh, traditional Western leftism agreeing on a notion, there's probably something there. Well, I've seen a lot of people who are anti-UBI say a jobs guarantee would be the, the thing. And uh, David Graeber goes into a lot in... He doesn't specifically single out a jobs guarantee as a as a terrible idea compared to UBI, but he talks about a lot about um, the Soviet Union where there was a jobs guarantee and how without going into the full right wing, the Soviet Union was a hell for every living being there and it was constant death and destruction. He talks about stuff like how you go into a butcher shop and you'd have to go through three people to get a slice of meat just because everyone was guaranteed a job or how they'd be building a road, but two thirds of the workforce would be off shift at that point and they'd just be getting drunk. And um, he, it doesn't, he makes it sound like, you know, it's not, all gulags but it's uh it's not the right way to go and yeah a lot of people have been talking about jobs guarantees especially in the states and yeah it's just going to lead to a hell of a lot of um a more bullshit jobs because the government is just going to have to make some bullshit jobs for people we also look at how um jobs guarantees aren't they don't it's hard to fully integrate them with things like disability not that people with disabilities can't work certain jobs and do a hell of a good job but it it doesn't address sort of a base left concern that that graber is concerned with um both in the essay in the book and with the prescription there which is that predicating human worth on our productivity and our work ethic is not the right way to go Mm. and addressing the problem of addressing problems with we only gain value through the labor that we produce, uh, especially in that specific capitalistic sense, really isn't an effective way to go. Because it's hardly a left theorist that will say things like, um, especially, you know, ones of a neo-Marxist bent, that, like, being an artist isn't a kind of labor, being a community member isn't a kind of labor, things like that. Being a parent. Okay. Yeah. There, there are crass ways to, to. I mean, that's where you see crass internet things being like, "Pay me, like Venmo me for my emotional labor." But the, the thought is still there that this is a real labor and it's a useful labor. Like, like any labor, it has a value. And putting people into jobs, which are a specific type of labor, doesn't 
accurately represent, especially when his, uh, his entire point is jobs that have no value as opposed to things these same people could be doing that would have value. Mm-hmm. Like, um, so, yeah, jobs guarantees wind up being uh, finicky in that way. Because a government can't, you can't really have a government mandated, like, artist or effective caretaker for reasons that history is borne out. Mm. Mass abuse and whatnot. Yeah, um, but as we said, it, it, it's, it is a really good good book. And it, he covers the, um, the idea he's brought up quite a lot before that um, certain types of labor, like, well, basically, the labor that produces the most social good gets paid the least. The labor that produces the most social harms gets paid the most. So fund managers get paid millions, and there was actually a mathematical working out of how much they contribute, and it's something like for every dollar they make, they take $7 from um, the society at large, whereas a caregiver would make a dollar and can technically be making, say, like $20 for everybody. It's um, so, And that's been... That's been pretty well covered in a lot of Graeber's books. He is a very humane person uh, when he's discussing economics, and which was kind of the initial point of his his kind of all his work. But his like very first uh, published essays were all on. Um, let me just bring them up. Sorry, I'm gonna have to edit this out while I click around. His first book is largely um, about about that. Uh, toward an anthropological theory of value. That was the one I was going to. Yeah, toward, yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, the whole Homo economicus idea, which he talks about a little in here, is really, really needs to be done away with. I, I know it's a that real economics economists um, consider it a stopgap measure just because it's easy to imagine everyone is a rational being so uh, that wants purely their own values, but and they know in real life they're not, but even that using that as a scaffold for economic theories is produces bullshit, and bullshit produces bullshit jobs and bullshit economics. And yeah, he does a good, he does a good job as he always does with um, getting to the emotional and uh, he even talks about the spiritual side of things. It's not spiritual as in religious, but it's spiritual is in like the very top of the maslow's pyramid that kind of thing the very like highest values whether you truly feel that you are being um it's it's that kind of spiritual it's not you know whether you go to church and he calls um the whole idea of bullshit jobs uh spiritual warfare which is like if you're into american evangelicalism that's like going out to somewhere and praying to drive demons away but he uses it here to be a a way of like beating people down uh with these useless emotionally destructive harmful jobs to the point where they can't really um yeah they will never fight back against things and that is it's very easy to look, look at that on a kind of conspiracy level you know the the council of 13 and the illuminati are all sitting around thinking okay capitalism's kind of fucked let's make people do 
bullshit jobs where they just dig a hole and fill it in all day. That way they will never get onto our schemes. But uh, Graeber does a pretty good job of making it sound non-conspiratorial. And um, which it, it could very easily be, and that's the very like uh, sophomoric way of looking at um, the phenomena of bullshit jobs as something to something the man has done to keep us down. Man, he's he's pretty good at that too. Yeah, it it misses that it misses that uh, the or that thought misses Graeber doesn't that there is very much an invisible hand that's just tremendously, tremendously stupid hmm. because of the fact that it's a non-thinking... It, it's it's the Hobbes-Leviathan problem. Um, the conglomerate pseudo-consciousness uh, doesn't have a guiding mind to it, so it can't act intelligently. It does not have intelligence. It just has action and uh, statistical uh, norm. Yeah. Like it's, it yeah. Jobs get created uh, ab nihilo, not because someone is telling them to, but because enough people are willing to do it, and the forces that would check that aren't. So we see that rough, like a uh, rough hand, guy, the invisible hand that shapes history. It's just it's not anyone's hand, and that's precisely where the problems start coming from. Yeah, yeah, it. it... He he does a good job of making it sound, you know, like he's not a, a first year politics student who's who really does believe that these there's you know, boardrooms in the world where people are figuring this out. He makes it pretty clear that a lot of the problems are just called are caused kind of by a lot of individual bad actors to the point where it becomes that leviathan, like all these middle managers who know that if they want to get promoted to upper management. They have to look important, and the best way to do that is to get a lot of um, subordinates, get a lot of people under them, so they can say, well, I run a team of 50 people, whereas uh, Dilbert over there runs a team of 30 people, therefore I should be one promoted. So they end up getting 20 people on their teams who do nothing and contribute nothing and feel terrible and uh, can have no real political action because they're working 50 hours a week and they plus another 20 <laughs> to get back and forth from work, plus they feel miserable all the time, so they're just watching Netflix. And at the end of the day, that one um, middle manager has, without knowing it himself, has contributed to capitalism's wheels keeping running. And he, for all we know, he might be reading this book, that, that hypothetical middle manager. There's probably a lot of them that are going to read this book. Like the... Uh, like the fund manager I met on the train, who had met David Graeber, had read a bunch of his books, and didn't quite see that there was a bit of a tiny of merest hint of hypocrisy with uh, this kid, this child who runs so much money around doing bullshit, uh, being heavily influenced by an anarchist author who was heavily into Occupy who might have literally been the guy who came up with the We Are The 1% slogan. 
Um, or 99%. He would not describe himself as we are the 1%. No, got that backwards. What, but, a, what a slanderous thing to say about it. No, I, I don't know. He's Literally an, inverting his politics. He's an international bestseller author, but he's probably got a bit of money by now. I hope this, this book does enough that it turns him into the 1%. And uh, yeah, then he can get a mega yacht. He can date Grimes. It, it'll be amazing for him. And uh, yeah, I... I I I have I have one comment about the uh, the structure of the book that I think is um that I think is relevant um people uh specifically to its like overstating its point and that's that um you and I will know this and a certain amount of people listening to this will know it actually considering our demographic probably a, a decent number of them um but. Uh, the one of the big differences between um, like pop nonfiction writing, especially on a topic like this where it's supposed to be informative, and it's also the same with like the difference between infographics and explanatory, um, like YouTube videos and BuzzFeed videos and things like that, mm-hmm. and like a serious nonfiction book on a topic. And that, this isn't to knock the pop things; they serve a purpose. I'm not anti. Um, I'm not I'm not against them. They just they have a role in the ecosystem that normally gets overstated, but they do have a role. Um is that the job of a book like this, and you can see it through Graeber's body of work as well. Like the guy he teaches at he's ter- currently teaches at Yale or previously taught at Yale, I forget whether he he's still there. Yeah, he he was denied a tenure in a possibly politically motivated uh, denial of tenure. I think he's at London School of um, Economics now. We're a small enough yeah. podcast, so I feel comfortable saying this. That was absolutely politically motivated. There's the <laughs> oh, yeah. timing of that. There is zero chance. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it was like just before Occupy. So, or just um, after or something. But anyway, anyway, carry on. It was just after. It was like right after his name got really, really big that he just uh, got dropped. Um, yeah. But because they also have a bunch of fucking uh, neoliberal goons in Yale. <laughs> but, uh, so... Um, the role of like serious non-pop oriented non-fiction writing is not to entertain you. Entertaining you is cool, and ideally there is that when it's going on, but it's to make it, the role is to make its point undeniable. Mm. And so an overstating of things tends to be actually pretty common. You also see that within uh, philosophy books, you see that within um, books about biology or physics or things like that. The point is you shouldn't walk away going, oh, that's a really compelling argument. You should go away going, that's true. Mm. Um, Like, it should be so grossly undeniable that they tend to use avalanches of data. Um, I mean, you also see the same thing if you ever decide to pick up the dry-ass hobby of uh, reading doctoral dissertations, which sometimes can be really, really fascinating, um, but almost always are structured the same way. Their goal is not to have any gaps where you could insert another thought. It's to, like, nail down. Now, granted, sometimes that's totally illusory, um, and they nail that down with, like, selectively curated data points, but um, my... uh, I'm I'm politically substantially aligned with with Graeber's anarcho-communism, so uh, I don't... I'm not accusing him of that. (laughs) Good. But I think I think that sometimes people will approach, especially something with like a looser title like bullshit jobs, and expect it to be a lighter weight 
kind of affirmative read. But ultimately, this is the same guy who wrote Debt, who wrote um, Utopia of Rules, things like that. That um, He has essays that are a bit more... Uh, I don't want to say human, because all of his work is pretty human, but a bit more, like, narratively focused. Like, the, the book that he wrote about Occupy and his experience mm, yeah. in it. That was the first one of really his I narrative. read. Picked that up in uh, Shakespeare and Co. in Paris, in fact. Nice. Yeah, best bookshop in the world. But, I, uh, carry on. I've, I've never been to Paris, so you're, you're one-upping me. Oh, yeah, Very literary. totally. Um, yeah, that was really good. Uh, but yeah so this is um like if you've read graver before the notion that he really hammers down his point like with a billion data points to the point where you um i think people were probably worn more on on this book bullshit jobs because it's dealing with a topic that doesn't feel as like sexily nightmarish as debt if that makes sense <laughs> yeah like there's there's a horribleness to the way that we've enslaved the world with capital that makes mm. even the drier moments of debt um really really compelling because yeah. it you feels can't... like you're engaging in this deep horror yeah you can talk about say um the u.s and haiti in the same way as you could talk about someone being the quality assurance process manager They're yeah on a very different level um, it also uh, on on a loosely related, only loosely related. How come all those like object oriented ontology speculative realist uh, dweebs? How come they didn't latch on to the uh, Lovecraftian notions of debt? Yeah, and I, I, uh, economic slavery. Yeah, I, I love those ideas. I think Eugene Facker talks about them a bit. How like things like corporations, yeah. uh, it, the like Leviathan thing we were talking about earlier. It's so Lovecraftian. It's so um, sanity destroying, and yet it's like a it's a stupid lumbering thing that we cannot possibly comprehend. It's utterly impersonal. Has no concern for the forces that it crushes beneath it because it has this totally alien, anti-human motive. Yeah. And yet, yeah, they they instead fixated on like how come. How come we do allow miscegenation? And it's like, ugh, <laughs> ugh. <laughs> that that too is very Lovecraftian. He he would be very um, upset about race mixing. <laughs> Maybe that's even the most Lovecraftian thing. Yeah, didn't think of that. It's it's, it's true. Is just like, to be a, uh, a weird racist. These white people are listening to their jump blues and this angers me. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, I, th I think I don't want to be like, um, is this a product you should uh, spend money and time on? Uh, but I think the takeaway message when we're talking about bullshit jobs in a kind of review sense is that if you read the original in 2013, if you've had a bu bullshit job, then I think you should buy this to give to someone else who hasn't done those things if this is like a gift book yeah it's um maybe give it to your uh a younger sibling who's just going into the workplace maybe try and like sneakily get your boss to read it somehow um tell him it's like a management technique book that can tell him how to reduce bullshit jobs 
and uh, hopefully he won't figure it out because bosses are dumb. But uh, yeah, it's it's, and I liked it a lot, and I liked David Graeber's work a lot, and I, and I think it's would it make a good jumping off point into a bigger thing on how we can actually reduce the number of bullshit jobs, and that's probably through a combination of UBIs, cooperatives, uh, and just generally getting our oh. shit together as a as a species. Because cooperatives, he he doesn't mention at all, and they probably. It's odd for an anarchist to not mention cooperative. That, know, that right? was the weirdest part. Um, yeah, it's that's like the solution to everything. But uh, he doesn't. It's um, like that's the one thing that Marxists were. They're right on that one. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, maybe he he just feels that he's you know an international best-selling author, and he's going to get get a lot of like uh, Hillary liberals reading this. And he doesn't want to blow their minds just yet. They, like they can get on board with UBI to a point. Uh, they'll, they'll they'll fuck it up, and it'll be terrible and probably kill a lot of people. Yeah, but, they will fuck it up. They know. will racist it up. That that's for damn sure. Oh yeah, <laughs> but uh, they'll do it in a, a woke way. And um, yeah, he he doesn't mention the word cooperative. I don't think occurs anywhere in this book, and it's like. A really really good solution to the bullshit jobs thing and a billion other things which would really work and there are the cooperative sector is actually growing and it's it should be should be a thing but uh no he he i'd like to see him mention that i think that the book largely came about as um so the initial essay spread like wildfire and like radical left spaces like it's not and his name is you know been around in radical left spaces for a long time um i think it was one of those things where especially given that this is put out by penguin and it's going to get like mass distribution in the way that a lot of his other books maybe didn't um that it was like someone looking at him and going this one this shouldn't just say an essay that only people who already agree with you are going to read Mm -hmm. um this should be turned into something. And like what you're saying, specifically pointed at people who don't know you yet. And so I think, especially in terms of like a crossover um, project, because again, it's one of those things where if you've read Graber before, I don't think that a lot of what he says in Bullshit Jobs is going to blow you away. Like it's not going to be like, I've never thought of that before, but that's because I don't think it's really meant for us. Um, like, the stuff he put out through Melville House, I think, is more pointed at, um, like, left spaces and things like that. But Also, I want to say, good on you, Penguin. You're on my shit list uh, earlier. That's, this is a good way to come out of that hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Penguin Random House. Um, my former employers, in, in a sense, before they merged. But, um, yeah, they're they doing okay. Um yeah, they even like the, the praise on the back is like Cory Doctorow, Rebecca Solnit, NPR for the NPR uh. authors. The Telegraph, uh, Slate, got some Slate in there. Uh, shout out to the Cultural Gab Fest, allegedly uh, another, a related show to this one, according to um, iTunes. I don't know how that happened. Uh, Times Higher Education, people like that. It, it, yeah, I think it's. it's Whoa. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's to get it's to get the it's to get the ship libs on board. Um, yeah, 
I, we got it. We we got it. Yeah. Some, yeah. I, that's unfortunately. Like red pill them at some point, or blue pill. I, I'm not sure which pill is the correct one to be using here, but. Uh, Certain yeah. certain radical leftists, I think, sometimes ignore that a, a functional component of leftism is uh, coalition building, and especially goal-oriented coalition building. Like they sometimes act like if you ever work with a liberal, it's because you have to agree with everything they think. And it's like no, it's to get this specific measure or this specific thing passed and put in place. Mm-hmm. And yeah, unfortunately, that means that we have to rope in the liberals at some point. We have to because we don't, especially in America. We don't have enough peer numbers on our own, but also, God, they're stupid. God, God, I hate them. Oh, yeah, I hate I them. Know. They're so dumb. <laughs> yeah, and, and this will do it. This will uh, introduce a few people to the concept of UBI, and then hopefully they'll go to some meetings somewhere about it, or they'll go to, like, they'll pick up another book, like, I don't know, like, uh, Demand in the Future, or Invent in the Future, which is, like, big on UBI stuff and is a bit more bit more lefty then they'll slowly get there but or hopefully they'll just vote for someone who's into it like i'm, I'm sure I, that, I don't uh, i don't need them to come all the way i just need them to vote and then <laughs> go away that's fine yeah i'm fine with that get, i'd like them to come further but <laughs> yeah, they can return to the cultural gab fest from whence they came but uh yeah let's uh let's say give give this one to your neoliberal uncle I'm sure everyone has a racist uncle, and he has an opposite, a Waluigi, <laughs> if you will, um, who is an uncle, and um, and they can they can they'll vibe on this, they'll get into UBI, and then give them drive them to the voting booth when it's when it's time, then put them back in the in the cupboard. So, but um, let's listen to some death metal instead. Let, oh boy! Yeah. After thinking about neoliberals at all, I, I need to need a little palate cleanse. Uh, I want to play Gruesome, because I love me some Gruesome. And uh, their second song off their new record, Twisted Prayers, is called Waste of Life. And it, from the lyrics, kind of sounds like... Okay, do you ever see that Netflix show, uh, Agretsuko? Do you ever the little cartoon fox? Agretsuko, that... yeah. Okay, whatever, weeb. Um, Look, <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to have the anime discussion again, right? Uh, it's not even anime. This will be our war. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it the, the lyrics the lyrics to "Waste of Life" remind me to the lyrics of the song that Agretsuko uh, sings when she's doing karaoke, uh, and that's a kind of compliment because I I thought the the actual death metal in Agretsuko or whatever is very bad it's kind of it's worse than metapocalypse and because at least like david brendan smalls like knew his stuff but this is like if someone knew the concept of death metal and was gonna play it they would it would end up sounding like it does in agretzico but gruesome know the concept of death metal because they've been in like a bunch of different awesome bands and they're awesome and they're all like angry old dudes and lady and um yeah these guys pull it off so we're gonna listen to waste life then we're gonna talk about snagglepuss probably yeah snagglepuss waste life not lying there 
No. <laughs> this is this is general. It's gonna happen. You're gonna listen to a six minute song about how much they hate somebody. Then we're gonna talk about a uh, gay fifties snagglepuss. It it it's on. You, this is what Welcome you signed to the up future, for. Baby. Yeah. Nothing means anything anymore. It's gruesome. <laughs>
There was a really good um, thing I saw on Twitter, which I stupidly closed down. I was talking about um, identity crisis. It was the the editor who edited um, DC Identity Crisis way back in the day. And uh, also, did you just die because you you heard Identity Crisis again? Um, no, I I do like the book. There are there are obviously valid critiques of it, but I think hmm. that it was it was well written. It was. The like yeah. action sequences were really good. It was well drawn, but um, yeah, I think it was it was like a a misstep in terms of what like DC's management wanted to do, which is what this thread talks about. Let me find if I can. Uh, yeah, Valerie uh, Diorazio, um, at stuff at um, stuff Val writes on Twitter. Which she's only got like two hundred twenty followers, but she's a like a pretty major DC editor. So yeah, she's been around for a long time and done a lot of stuff. Yeah, she's uh okay. Where? Damn it! Where? Where did I find that? Okay. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of introduce this as a, a bit bit of a background to what you're gonna talk about with this kind of as you described it, kind of semi-renaissance in DC, as kind of like what was happening in 2004 and kind of kept happening to the point where things at DC got bad creatively. So Valerie Diorazio was an editor at the time at, um, at DC. Uh, she was the assistant editor of a major crossover, well, not crossover, ma a major book called Identity Crisis. And... <clears throat> she says, I'm just going to read this thread. Uh, the book was originally conceived as at a DC Comics editor's retreat as part of an overall push to make the publisher more dark and edgy as to compete with Marvel Comics. Uh, VP Dan Didia? Didia? Specifically uh, said, uh, Didia. Didia. Specifically said at the retreat that his goal was to take the smile out of comics. So Identity Crisis was supposed to be a statement on DC's new direction. And part of that new direction would be more adult themes, such as rape and greater violence. Identity Crisis writer Brad Meltzer got some criticism over the rape scene in the book and its level of violence overall. But to be fair to him, he was specifically asked by editorial to put that in. He didn't come to us with those ideas. Uh, Brad Meltzer, thou art avenged. Um, was there an awkward salaciousness in-house about those themes in Identity Crisis? Absolutely. I've told the story before of the associate editor running in the office with, in his words, the rape pages. Sue Dibney, um, which to people who don't 
into comics. Uh, there was a character called uh, the Elongated Man, who was kind of, he could stretch, kind of like Mr. Fantastic in Marvel. Uh, he was a detective. He was a great detective. He had a wife named Sue Dibney, and she was... Very... Yeah, it showed... He showed he showed up backup stories of Detective Comics a lot. Yeah, he he's never like a huge character. I don't think he was ever in the like main Justice League or anything. But he's like a, a well loved character because he's a a nice guy who's smart. He's a, a little silly, um, and he fits very much the Silver Age uh, like '60s image of superheroes. Is kind of wacky. There, there's the comedic bent there. There's the sci-fi bent, but ultimately, is pure of heart. He and his non-superpowered wife they go. They solve. They solve mysteries. Yeah, and they have a, a lovely relationship where they're like a man and wife who um, get on well. They complement each other and keep each other's worst instincts in check, and identity crisis was about um sue dibney was uh raped by uh is it professor dr light who was like dr a, light yeah he was like a, a almost joke character because he was in a main antagonist for the teen titans who were like teenage superheroes like robin and wonder girl and he was he was like a, a nobody character and yet he somehow got into a position of sexually assaulting a another like fairly minor character who was also very well loved and very um they talk here about her being like a girl next door kind of character and um it then transpired that the justice league like wiped his uh dr light's brain and then at a later date dr light gets his memories back and it's um there's like this huge uh, there's a very well done mystery that comes in from a i think it it starts with sue Dibney dying doesn't it she she's killed yeah, and that is... then she's murdered there's it's a huge mystery and then it um kind of uh spirals out from there to to, to dig up the justice league's dirty history of brain wipes and um even though the brain wiping isn't actually spoilers isn't actually connected to the murders the murders are really stupid. The motives behind them are awful, and um, yeah, yeah. The the ending is is bad, but the way they get there is actually a really solid superhero mystery. Yeah, it's and... a it's a complicated. It reminds me of um, and these two are closely tied for for reasons that are obvious to anyone who follows comics. Identity Crisis sits sort of right next to the Killing Joke, um, mm. which is the story where. Uh, Barbara Gordon gets paralyzed by the Joker and it's strongly implied that she either gets sexually like like sexually molested by him or just assaulted in the sense of being stripped and having pictures taken. It's horrible stuff regardless. Just yeah. it's I just which I, I remember thing. um Alan Moore saying in an interview that she was like fully I think even he used the word gang raped by the Joker and his like goons. Which is even I worse, wouldn't but, yeah. yeah. Um, but in terms of a story that, uh, to be very brief on it, obviously has some tremendous flaws in how they handle the subject matter that uh, comes across as they want you to take it seriously, but in reality it's far too flippant. It truncates uh, the humanity of the female characters. It um, So it a lot that you can dig in and say is... Uh, pretty nasty and not good but it's complicated by 
the uh, moments, scenes, elements that you're like, I see the pro- like if you think of it in an elemental form, you go, I see the potential there and why you took a stab at it, but you look at the finished product and you go like, that is not how you handle a story like this. Mm, yeah. Like there is the translation gap there that, uh, to make it a bit more clinical that, and if anything, that's sort of highlight how a translation gap on something like this can turn into something really kind of vile for a lot of people for pretty decent reason. Um, but yeah. let, let's bring it to the current day because I've kind of fallen out of comics and I, wanna, I don't want to say that Identity Crisis was the start of it because it wasn't. I, I remember reading Identity Crisis when I was pretty young and loving it and thinking, oh, it was a clever take on superheroes and stuff. And then getting a bit more online and thinking, okay, yeah, it's it that's kind of fucked up that they need they feel the need to take the smile out of comics. And um, yeah, that, that's and that's They're, been a kind of recurring theme in especially DC. DC's particularly bad for this. They even make a joke about it in Deadpool which is like a graphic and sexy and violent thing already, but they, they make a joke about how dark and grim and gritty DC is, and it, and it is. The films are especially bad about this because we have a grown-up child in Zack Snyder directing it. But um, So there was, um, there was kind of a shift in, in DC uh, shortly after Identity Crisis, and it was um, uncomfortably spurred, at least in part, by... Um, this is all roughly a prelude to what we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. but uh, but it at least is also good grounding material if we ever decide to come back to the top of comics to at least build all this stuff down, too. Uh, so after Identity Crisis um, and it being, uh, and this, this is uncomfortable now, but it's very well received at the time, and mm. partly because... One, a suppression of female voices uh, in the space saying that it was fucked up. Um, like, they, the voices were present. The people were present. Women have been in comics for a very, very long time, just as long as men. They were very, very vocal about it then. Just the it, those thoughts were shut down. Um, so uh, people, especially like, I was 17 when it came out. I was fixated on the same the same thing of like, oh, this, this is a clever way to like, you know, after having spent years getting more into like literary fiction and like cerebral experimental books and weird sci-fi and stuff like that, here's a, oh, that's a, a nice stab at that, you know, it gets complicated as you get older by learning how uh, that is. Um, but they hit kind of a, uh, I don't want to say something as cheesy as they hit an identity crisis themselves, but they weren't really, uh, they were behind Marvel in a big way. And as, uh, as the, the decade rocked on, they would fall more and more behind Marvel, especially as like the movie started to take off for them. Mm-hmm. They started getting really kind of frantic. Uh, there was a set of series that were, um, sequels to crisis on infinite earths, um, which is, Probably the most important crossover comic. Um, it created the event as we know it, like the the 
notion of big comic events that are mass crossovers and line-wide stories and things like that. Um, it also did a hard reset on, I mentioned before, the, the Silver Age continuity and birth, what we now call the Bronze Age continuity, which is um, the 80s uh, into the like mid to early 2000s. Um, actually, the Bronze Age is 70s into that, but whatever, that's semantics. It definitely helped birth the modern age. So they made sequels to that that were roughly received, I'm going to put it, but I happen to quite like because they were filled with a lot of the same... They were only roughly received because they hearkened back to the macro-psychedelia of the 60s Silver Age sci-fi. Oh man, that's a lot of alliteration. (laughs) Nice. Um, That... uh, that those stories used to have, and a lot of people were thrown off because they wanted the more um, the more realistic tales. Uh, I mean, we get the same kind of like, in my opinion, the bad anti literary um, compliment that Marvel's given sometimes that oh, the characters are more relatable, mm-hmm. and it's like the role of a superhero in my mind is not to be strictly in some way to embody the fantastical or the uh, science fictional or the horrific ideal of a thing that could not be real or like a rarefied um, uh, archetype or symbol, you know, something like that. Like it, when you are indulging in fantasy, you have the literary capability to make real certain things that don't exist in the real world. And you can do certain things with that. And like Alan Moore's whole career is built on literary examination of that. Mm. Um, Especially as his career rocks on into like the stuff that he did with, uh, the stuff that he did with Liefeld in, in the 90s with Supreme and the stuff that he did with America's Best Comics and all that kind of stuff. Um, and literally what Watchmen is. But uh, at some point, the reins got passed over to... It was shared by a bunch of people, but at some point, Grant Morrison, uh, who is a big, whether he likes it or not, he's very obviously a more acolyte. They're roughly the same age, but the chronology works out. Mm-hmm. Um and though not to him, uh, it's like his work a lot, he gets roped in to the main creative impetus. And his big fixation since forever has been um, both experimental literary stuff and Silver Age uh, comics, as well as like a punkish uh, political streak mm-hmm. and like uh, energy streak. He starts actually influencing the direction they're going, writes Final Crisis, which is this big like fucking bizarre metafictional uh transcosmic uh epic that people hated at the time but have come back around to um it's it's gotten a lot of praise in the past couple years um starts throwing a bunch of ideas he he helps pitch the idea that batman should fight his way backwards and forwards through time to become bruce wayne again which is a crazy storyline that happened it's sick he fist fights time um (laughs) There's a lot of time punching that goes on in the affairs crises. It's, oh, it's it's if you ever want to see tight. time punched, then it's yeah. people act like that's stupid, but it's like the in, the entire notion of a superhero is stupid. So you you can't if you shy away from that. If anything, shying away from that is what gets us grim gritty shit. At mm, some point, exactly. you have to embrace the joyfulness of that. Um, yeah, and Grand Morrison uh, was a very odd character to be in that like milieu at the time when Daniel yeah. Didio was trying to grim dark the whole universe, and Grand Morrison was coming along being like, 
let's have 3D glasses uh, so you can do an episode where Superman goes to limbo and meets these like deleted characters from a 90s crossover thing that never quite worked out because he has like an encyclopedic knowledge of literally everything alongside the willingness to be weird as fuck. Yeah, it's uh, one of the most beloved bits is uh, Grant Morrison didn't invent, he he brought back the notion of Limbo that it existed in DC Comics, but he rephrased it as a metafictional thing where characters that aren't being published go and had Animal Man go there in the early 90s during the like really, really rich early Vertigo period. Which oh, yeah. oh, by the way, everyone, everyone in the world, uh, read Grant Morrison's Animal Man. Go do that. Yes, yeah, that's, yeah, immediate cosign, yeah, absolutely. Um but, uh, yeah, so he starts infecting uh, the thought process there in a, in a good way, like the healthy mind virus. They, they do the new 52, which, uh, uh, yeah, and then, then they fixed it, so that's fine. Um, not going to get too much into that. that I, could, I could do a lot about the, um, the interesting thoughts, but failed interesting thoughts. Anyway, the, the playfulness starts to come back. And in the past couple of years, they've actually been doing... Uh, since DC Rebirth, they've been having a lot of really playful ideas, some that are more uh, wacky, some that are more sincere. They've upped the amount of... Uh, well, actually, they recently axed a bunch of female-led um, comics, but a big thing that uh, Morrison brought back as his brief tenure um, uh, as like one of the chief editors in their editorial meetings was a lot of alternate universes and the ability to indulge in one-shots or series that exist outside of continuity. Um, and not just to fully credit him, DC picked that up and pretty much all the editors started to run with that. They launched a new line recently called DC Black, which I th- most of them are in continuity, but some aren't, um, that are independent graphic novels that are part creator-owned and they can really dive into some interesting stories there. They've hired, like, they brought Kurt Busiek back, uh, who's a, a major comic name, um, like Astro City is just a, a landmark comic, to write a Batman story that is in its own little world um, called, I think, I think Children of the Night, something like that. It's, it's currently in shop, so it's, it's easy enough to find. But it's these four really thick issues, so it gets, like, a book-length release every couple of months. They've, uh, they have the Earth-1 whole line which is a totally reimagined continuity where they only release graphic novels for them but really let them dive into a story without being restricted to a uh, serial format stuff so lots and lots of playful things something parallel to this we're getting very close to what we're talking about um, <laughs> something parallel to this is dc for the longest time like uh over a decade now i forget they have one of the most uh, rich and diverse, active line of children's comics. So, like, they have Tiny Titans, which is a uh, a grade school, a grade to mid, uh, middle a middle school, bleh, gr- grade, grade middle school. school, grade school to middle grade uh, aimed comic. There we go. Not yeah. tongue tied anymore, baby. <laughs> uh, about the Teen Titans, they have a bunch of. They have a line of like. Uh, the like super friends, the yeah, uh, D- DC. I think it's DC girls. It's like almost a Disney yeah. princesses, but they're DC comics characters. So you got like Katana as a Disney princess, which makes and tons so, of sense. And they have uh, lots of uh, 
like uh, early age um, books. Like uh, my favorite one is one literally called "The Flash is Caring." Um, the Flash <laughs> is caring. He, oh wow! It's about how he cares about his friends. Um, nice. So, uh, I want to read that. They, so so they they have a really really big uh, range of these things, and they've been really active with it. And this, if anything, uh, I think sometimes the critique of DC Comics mainline truncates. Uh, first in deliberately, but next deliberately. The fact that they've had these running alongside the entire time. Their um, comic shops may not always uh, stock them, and comics writers may not always talk about them because it's it's children's stuff, and maybe they don't you know follow that. But it's always existed. They've had kids lines um, that are actually like critically well received in the uh, children's media spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, alongside those. Uh, they've had the comics rights to Looney Tunes and Hanna-Barbera, which have, um, for for a long time now. Like, uh, Warner Brothers, I think, owns Hanna-Barbera and Looney Tunes, and Warner Brothers owns DC now, so it just, they let DC put all all that stuff out. Um, and they've had, uh, if you've ever grown up with, like, a weird aunt or something like that, you probably have been given, like, a Looney Tunes like comic at some point um or like when the Hanna-Barbera cartoons got canceled they still had comics coming out for a while and uh DC has actually continued to release stories in that format like traditionally drawn uh traditional traditionally toned stories it's like if you pick up a Looney Tunes comic it reads like it's Looney Tunes it doesn't read like a DC-ified Looney Tunes um and they've had that going on for, for quite a while now. At some point during a retreat, there was a pitch of, um, why don't we do standard DC style for some of those properties? And people latched onto it, and they weren't run instead of uh, these other stories, because um, they still sell, like, gazette size, like Archie comic size comics of like old Flintstone stories and whatnot. But they decided, hey, why don't we have um when I say adult, I don't mean like everyone's fucking all the time. I mean just imagine if the Flintstones wasn't pointed directly at kids and they had a book about that where it's like what would uh political and social life be like in uh in not Fraggle Rock. That's not a whole different thing. But yeah, I can't remember um, its name now. It's had a Rockberg or something, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and so, like, it dealt with notions of queer acceptance. It dealt with notions like uh, anti-racism um, in a more contemporary art style with uh, the Flintstones. They had a similar thing with, uh, what if Scooby in the world of Scooby-Doo, a monster apocalypse happened and succeeded, and the mystery gang a losing battle against the tides of uh, the apocalypse. They have that. Um, wait, 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 wait. Whole bunch of little things the like that. The whole point of Scooby Doo was that the monsters were never real. That, that was the whole point. Was yeah, like, but it, it was, was uh, the so... owner of the haunted wait, amusement wait. park. Would, would they I just, can like... defend their on paper really dumb idea. In the <laughs> mid '90s, there was a movie called Scooby Doo and something zombie I, pirate island. I forget the exact name, but they're on an island that has uh, supposedly pirate zombies, and that was the first thing where they reveal, like, two-thirds of the way through that the zombies are real. Oh. And that 
took off for them. So that started a whole wave of what if the monsters are real, at least some of the time. And so that's been going on for a bit now. DC didn't come up with that. They just leaned into it. Okay. Well, as long as they so that's not their fault. The Harlem Globetrotters. That was my favorite part. <laughs> yeah, that, that part's always, always tight. Good. Um, and then shortly after that, someone pitched like, we're already doing contemporary versions of, of these properties. Why don't we have crossovers? And so the, uh, so last year they started, um, with what they announced were just going to be a bunch of one shots of, uh, DC cross Looney Tunes and DC cross Hanna-Barbera, uh, comics where I'm trying to pick my words carefully here because I saw a bunch of critiques of these online that I thought were um, deliberately missing the point. Uh, So they don't visually um, replicate the source material. Mm -hmm. If anything, the thought is... Uh, the thought is treated as what if Looney Tunes or Barbera characters existed within the DC universe? What DC characters would they interact with and what how would those interactions go? And so you have things like Booster Gold, the time-traveling superhero, accidentally traveling back in time and meeting the Flintstones and having an adventure there with the Flintstones, where he winds up taking them to the far future at one point and oh. freaks them out. You have a uh, Green Lantern go off uh, space adventure to another sector of space to find out that functionally the Green Lantern of that sector is Space Ghost. Um, As in Space Ghost, coast to coast? Likewise. You, from uh, uh, Yes, although... Oh. Uh, yes. <laughs> although not the joke version, uh, the superhero, right, okay. the space superhero one. Okay. Likewise, you have, like, Jonah Hex, the Wild West character, meeting Yosemite Sam. Uh, Martian Manhunter meets Marvin the Martian. Um, that was really confusing uh, there's for him. A, a really fucking funny one where uh, Lobo, who's basically DC's version of Deadpool, uh, valiantly tries to kill the Roadrunner because he's... Coyote. Or he and Wiley Coyote accidentally switch places. Um, and Wiley Coyote's being pursued through space by uh, cosmic bounty hunters who are trying to kill Lobo and think that he's Lobo, but he can't die because he's Wily Coyote, so he keeps freaking out these space bounty hunters, and Lobo keeps trying to kill the Roadrunner who always escapes, and instead Lobo gets, like, eradicated with space nukes and things like that. <laughs> okay. Um, so they're played on... So it's, uh... Yeah, Lobo is like Deadpool, uh, but he's more... Worse than Deadpool. In that he's He's... Very hit or miss. No, De- um, Deadpool is hit or miss. Be really like, funny. if you put Deadpool in the right, right hands, the right uh, writer, then he's pretty good. I've never read a good Lobo story. I don't think such thing exists. I, I've read a couple, but they are the rarity, and they almost always need to be like uh, either mini series or he needs to be a character nested within another person's story. So he's like. Like a like a color on on the palette, as opposed to, but yeah, that's its own. That's its own whole fucking world. Uh, but yeah, with the um. 
so the, the premise, the stories are sort of premised on a kind of thing that you can get away with in like comics and in uh, cartoons and things like that, that you can't tonally get away with in too many other media. Um, like if you do this kind of uh, intergenre mixing, uh, which is the large thrust of it, they got critiqued by some people because it's like, oh, these are supposed to be funny animals for children and you've made them grimdark. And it's like, <laughs> that's the playful thought though. That's like, you haven't critiqued it. You've hit the exact, the exact notion um, and I can see why that would bother someone unless you, until you find out they're still publishing the kids appointed uh, versions of these. And even every single book has a backup story where it's the same interaction, but with an inverted uh, tonal palette where the DC characters are now drawn as though they are in the cartoony, either Hanna-Barbera or um, Looney Tunes style. It's a much loosier kid-friendly version of their interaction where like Lex Luthor accidentally gets himself uh, hit with an anvil that drops on him, stuff like that. Um, And uh, outside of a space like comics or, um, or cartoons, that kind of genre mixing would be considered either experimental or deeply strange. Um, Experimental being the kind way to put it, and strange being the bad one. Um, mainly because we condition ourselves to think that we need, uh, like good Poe-trained uh, literary critics, that we need a kind of tonal consistency to a work. And also this bad sort of regressive thought that work needs to stay tonally oriented to its origin. Uh, we see that with some of the worst critiques of um like the Thundercats reboot, which I'm not oh, yeah. super hot on, but it's not it's not fair to say that changing its tone makes it bad. That's just mm-hmm. not a worthwhile thought. Um <clears throat> you can comment on the over prevalence of that specific tone and that specific art style, but the mere notion of it is not not an offensive thing. Uh and that likewise these these are being birthed from a DC that's rediscovering how to be playful and how to um, how to even view things like violence and grim, dark, noirishness as a tonal palette that you can play with, which I think is a more healthy way to approach it. Yeah, um, it's kind of I the don't th- inverse of what they were doing in Identity Crisis. It's not saying yeah. we're going to darken down all the colors so it's all just gray and brown. This is like... Grimdark is a, it's it's the black in the palette, but we've also got some pinks and some yellows in there too, because it's all because it's a palette. It's not a a singular aesthetic choice to make every single thing uh, rape and murder and terror. And, and we see this kind of general general move within uh, within art and popular art criticism uh, that there's this re. Um, Obviously, ultra grimdark stuff tends to be quite reactionary, not just politically, but also just on an aesthetic level. It's mm. kicking back against uh, a view of the a view that art is presenting the world as too rosy. And how can you be aware of things like sexual assault, um, police brutality, uh, racism, uh, meaningless genocidal war? How can you be aware of that and then think that the only art you want is 
uh, people having fun with friends and everyone high-fiving and accepting each other. It's like, at a certain point, you're willfully not representing a very real part of the world that no one can deny. Then it turns ugly and useless and exploitative, and we get an equal-sized reaction uh, of basically, like, the cute, bubbly stuff. That there's nothing necessarily wrong with either one. They're necessary tonal components. But we're in the midst right now of a reactive kick um, against anything that's grim. I mean, you even see it to the point where the Overwatch character uh, with the two shotguns who says, like, I love to kill. And then whenever he reloads his shotguns, he throws them away and draws two completely new shotguns (laughs) from his jacket. People, instead of seeing that as like, oh, that's a playful kind of cheeky way to... Instead, they're like, oh, that's the grimdark edgelord one in... Is that a Reaper? Is that yeah. the character's name? Yeah. And so it's like, we a better way to integrate this is that these are components that can be played off of each other. And I don't think anyone who's... Honestly, I don't think anyone who listens to this is going to be shocked by that assertion, because I, I don't think you can be big into the literary world and not have a mutual respect for children's lit and, say, Raymond Chandler. Like, it's hard to... There are components that you can critique in either one, but it's hard to deny either one completely. Incidentally, when... Have you seen um, that the... I don't know how big Warhammer the universe is in um, the US, but I know in Britain it's like every awkward kid grew up on Warhammer. But they... Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty big here. <laughs> so I've um, they've just put out two uh, middle grade books, and the term <laughs> the term grimdark was actually from Warhammer Forty K. It was in the yep. grim darkness of the forty first millennium. Blah blah blah. There's only war. Uh, shout out the bolt thrower. But um, <laughs> yeah, they've just brought out two basically children's books set in the terrifying dystopian fascistic warhammer universe that that's like very popular with a uh military people in the u.s and b kind of creepy neo-reactionary types because it's kind of what they want the world to look like which is mystifying a defense of it is that the whole premise of it is that it's satirizing that and it's like judge dread and yet people it it, it arose that the two great science fiction franchises of Britain in the kind of Thatcher era were Judge Dredd and Warhammer because they were uh, reacting to Thatcher's, uh, like, Britain. They're acting to, like, these horrible grey concrete uh, tower blocks that were, like, Mega City 1 and the Hive Worlds in um, Warhammer. They're reacting to, like, militarised police and, like... Everything about it is is very much set in Thatcher's Britain for, first and foremost, and then it's it's got to obviously evolve. So, like the most recent Dread film was really good. Um, that was a wicked good movie. Yeah, I know. I'm it, never gonna make a sequel because it made no money at all. But yeah, I know it's probably just I, I watched on Netflix like 400 times, and that's and you can't make any money off me doing that. You need me to like go to the <laughs> cinema every day. But uh, I didn't even know it was at the theatres until it came out on Netflix. But um, yeah, and they're never going to make a Warhammer film because it would just be an absolute mess. But um, 
Yeah, I would not trust anyone to properly make a Warhammer film. No. They would just make fascist propaganda instead of what that should be. Yeah, it, it, I think that's the very weird thing about this middle grade Warhammer book is it's, I, I, I want to read it. I want to actually read it for this show, in fact, because there's a lot of people who are bigger than I, Warhammer. But, um, I, I feel the same way. One of my big, so um, I specifically, when I was studying literary stuff, uh, got, uh, I, I was specifically in intertextual studies. That was the big thing that I focused on. Um, so obviously you get someone like Jennifer Egan doing intertextual stuff within a, within a novel. Um, so that's obviously big. Um, but then, yeah, things like transplanting a work into a different space and, um, let, uh, seeing how it takes its new shape. I, that, that's where I brought up before that, um, art is sort of dead aesthetic, meaning is something that comes from outside of it. It comes up with that and that the very notion that you can transplant uh, some component of Warhammer 40K into a middle grade environment and it will fertilize, auto fertilize and auto reintegrate itself into that form. It's really fucking fascinating to me, like the way that that can be done. Like we see uh, DC as a, um, uh, a, chill, or a young girls oriented cartoon um called dc super girls i think i yeah, forget exactly what uh, yeah i mentioned it earlier i think it's oh yeah dc girls uh well um, no where it's like a wonder woman led team but it's like there's batgirl there's uh i think it actually is batgirl and batwoman and then there's also raven and there is uh oh, yeah, bumblebee is and dc superhero girls it's yeah. um, and it, it looks really really good um and and yeah there, a, she has to be but, um, uh, but yeah, we also see, uh, like that reminds me, uh, God, I was, I was, it was on the tip of my tongue a second ago. So like textual, uh, transplants, um, now it's gone for right now. It's gone. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. The, I, uh, the notion that work can so deeply alter its form based on that, that transplanting, I think is a component of the playfulness of art that I think it gets lost in the shuffle sometimes when we discuss like what makes Marvel good, what makes DC bad um, to pick sort of one pop discussion. But, but we see that in other, other spaces. It's also exactly the same motive that makes um, that makes things like fan fiction so compelling both to make and then on, on an academic end. Uh, to dig into and critique is precisely that idea of placing components next to each other and seeing what kind of frisson might be there uh, and what thoughts might develop. Um, And so we wind up sometimes wrongly, and that's where we get like weird ideas that like there can't be a good Superman movie when um, literary study of Superman uh, is more than profoundly validating of the character as uh, like a nested set of symbolic symbols. We even get the notion that like people who are mad about Captain America being turned fascist um, in that series, uh, which there are pros and cons to that one. He did, he did turn back. That's the important part. He did turn back. Mm -hmm. Um, Would probably 
be better served to be disgusted if something like that had ever happened to Superman, because while Captain America was made by a Jewish creator specifically to fight Nazis, if anything, that makes that inversion um, more have more immediate frisson. Like, because you're, it, it's the easiest creative trick in the world. You just invert the standard uh, relation between two things and go, what if? Um, Superman turning fascist would... Superman, the character, is more deeply, uh, more deeply Jewish and more deeply tied to Jewish uh, thought and identity, very specifically by Siegel and Schuster, um, with you know having parallels to Noah, having parallels to the story of the Golem, um, being created again by two uh, two young Jewish men. Like it's, yeah, it's oh oh, I love this whole <laughs> this whole space which is what makes the dc movies as frustrating as they are oh, because like boy, as much as like i don't think Zack snyder's dc movies are bad and i get flack for that sometimes oh yeah I, and you should they are bad i like i like that well okay so I'm willing to deeply critique them because they have many, many flaws. Uh, but they feel like a person offering their interpretation and view of these characters. I don't, unlike a lot of the Marvel movies, I don't look at it and go, that's DC's movie. I'm like, that's Zack Snyder's movie. I can tell these are his thoughts on Batman and Superman. And I think there's a value to that, even if I'm like, I think you got it all wrong. Um, yeah, okay, I can see that. Yeah, Marvel movies has people have often pointed out are very homogenous everyone has so, almost the exact same tone and style and so i i also think there is a space as much as there is a necessary space for the joyful um liberatory thoughts of um superman as like a uh a, a, to to like loosely quote morrison a um contemporary uh embodiment of the god of mercy um yeah the, the like kind of awesome a um, superman style yeah a, a christ for the 21st century where we've mm -hmm. shed religion but we haven't shed the religious connotations of science um and likewise there is a space for a batman that leans into the surreal dream logic of i want to fight crime because my parents were killed how do i want to do that i want to dress up as a bat mm -hmm. um and leaning into the like no, you don't have to be a fascist to do that. You can play off of these other elements, or you can send them on science fiction adventures and things like that. I think there is a place for, yeah, but isn't isn't the typical motif of fascism these larger-than-life impossible figures? Hmm. And yeah. it's a question, at least, that I think DC engages more in textually than Marvel does. Marvel will name-check it, but at the end of the day, they don't see, they ultimately do not see superpowered singular figures as being sort of objectivist, uh, fascist masturbation yeah. symbols. And I, mean, I don't think no you can really get characters. away with like, it. You, yeah. you couldn't write a Spider-Man story where Spider-Man questions if what he's doing is fascistic, if he's just Judge Dredd in a, in a silly suit with web sprayers. That makes no sense for the character. Well, even and, Captain and, America makes very little sense for, but um, yeah. And and so like uh, that that's ultimately been the the primary tonal split is that 
Marvel is very focused on human stories set within a world that have superheroes. And that's good. That should exist. I like Marvel. I like that they do that. That's a, definitely a part of the palette that should exist. And if anything, that's the kind of story that Identity Crisis wanted to be and totally failed at, as, like exploring what if human troubles and human violence, like sexual violence and the the inexplicable nature of violence like it's not caused by something you don't because if anything that's the benefit of identity crisis it doesn't present anyone is deserving what happened in that book it just mm. happened it does not handle that right but uh at least the general notion that you don't deserve sexual assault you do not deserve murder these things happen and they're brutal and horrible um and they're horrible precisely or partly because they are never earned like you you never deserve something like that dc works better though when they focus more on symbolic function like it's the more campbellian of the two major houses mm. um like they they serve as mythic figures and mythic inter- which obviously is like if you have a degree in literary shit there's there's a lot more to immediately dig into um with that palette because it literally plays to our theory texts, like, oh, it's so easy. Um, <laughs> and that's what makes things like, uh, if anything, just the pairing of, say, Wonder Woman and the Tasmanian Devil, uh, there's an immediate sense building that you can have there. Of like, oh, he's a kind of mythic figure within a, a labyrinth that she would, okay, that... Um, and at least, like, the way that those uh, crosses can highlight uh, shared tonal characteristics or shared, like, germinal thoughts, to speak in terms of, like, um, art production, the thought before the thought, the, like, the rough feeling or rough archetype that compels you to make something. Mm. Uh, highlight, having a work that textually acknowledges a shared impulse that generates that, I think... Uh, has value and has like a sense of fun and joy to it um that became inexplicable to me when i was seeing people go like they're not drawing them like funny animals and they're making everyone grim how come dc always makes it grim how come and it's like if you don't think that elmer fudd being in a noir tale where he's hunting the bat is Mm -hmm. in any way compelling to you you've lost the plot you don't get what art is anymore (laughs) like you you just have totally dissociated um because he literally goes bar to bar trying to hunt the bat as the ultimate prey, having in textually in the Elmer Fudd Batman crossover uh, killed Bugs Bunny and killed Daffy Duck. He's finally succeeded, and now he's trying to find better stuff. Also, he uh, presents it like his uh, his whole life has been ruined. Like it's presented like a Raymond Chandler noir, uh, and the only thing he finds left uh, value in his life is hunting. Oh, also, he uh, visits a, a bar to find information about Batman. Uh, do you want to know who the proprietor of the bar is? Yes. Oh, I'll give you a hint based on the name of the bar. The bar's name is Porky's. I think, yeah, yeah, I got, it. I, 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 so, I, got, I got it. That's yeah. Wow. So just like it reinterprets these Looney Tunes characters as all human. They even have a Bugs Bunny stand-in. 
because he's hunted rabbits before, but Bug, Bugs Bunny is a man in this, and it's a man with an overbite, and he speaks with a kind of a chattering stutter uh, and calms himself by eating carrots, which are his favorite. So it's just like little fun things like that. It, it's very strange to me that people can rightfully loud something like Riverdale, which is that same kind of... Um, I think that was the point that I was going to make, is Archie Comics has been doing this for a while, and Riverdale is just the most recent Ooh, big yeah. example. They've had um, Afterlife with Archie and tons of stuff for a very long time. Yeah. And taking that notion and going like, what if we apply them to the CW and asking themselves, kind of like what DC has done with their likewise very successful and quite good CW shows like uh, Arrow and Flash. Good for what they are is what I'll say. Mm, And then it's the same thought as, it's the same thought of Riverdale as if we're going to have shows with our... Um, with our figures on the CW, what should that look like? And instead of going, it should look like Archie bopping with friends, or it should look like the Flash having super real, normal superhero adventures. They go, no. The CW is known for teenage melodrama, uh, relationship dramas. Oh, and, sorry, you got, and... a bu- you got a bunch of noise there. Uh, it's like, no, the CW is known for teenish melodrama, um, a bunch of relationship stuff, and then the high concept, like, lattice that all this is attached to. And so they both lean into that. And so you have this Baroque, uh, like, Riverdale plays more like a gothic novel than a, than a CW show. It just takes place on a high school and name checks that stuff. Mm. Um, Likewise, you have uh, Flash and Arrow and Legends of Tomorrow, which play, like, absolutely kooky, like, uh, younger-aged superhero stories. It'd be, like, backup stories. Um, Just shotgunned with, like, weird high-concept shit, but, (laughs) like, ultimately... Ultimately, they are CW shows that just happen to star superheroes, um, and it's strange that we can rightfully acknowledge, like, there's a use to that. There's a utility to that because these, um, these demographics like those stories. Like Arrow and Flesh are successful TV shows. Riverdale is wildly successful as a TV show. Supernatural will never get canceled, no matter what happens, even when they're openly antagonistic in episodes. Did you know that in a most re uh, it, then in one of the most recent seasons of Supernatural, the devil became the president. I didn't. I've literally never seen an episode of Supernatural. I think the it's, amount of times people have talked about it has made me not want to watch it. But, that's uh, fair. I thought the same. I was convinced by my friend that if you like comic book logic, watch it because it. The first couple seasons, it's a normal show. And then everyone starts to hate making the show, and you can tell. And every episode and every long season arc is their most valiant attempt yet to get canceled, and it <laughs> never works. They get more successful. It's it's okay, like it's like the Ren. It's like uh, I hate to name check. Uh, no, no, I can. Uh, Rocker's Modern Life also has it. So it's like that Rocker's Modern Life episode that's clearly about how they're trying to get Rocker's Modern Life canceled, but everyone likes the weird high concept stuff that they do. <laughs> um. Yeah, it's uh yeah, so the devil becomes the president at one point, but he doesn't want to be the president. He wants to go back to hell. Um 
They also have an episode where they cross over with Scooby-Doo. Like, they I get transplanted that, yeah. into Scooby-Doo. Right. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh... I might get that one a go, because it sounds like a kind of beautiful mess that I kind of was hoping Riverdale would be. Riverdale's a good show, but it's it's not it's not a train wreck. And yeah, it's, I if love anything, train wreck they've... shows. I love same. train wreck I think entertainment in general. Same. I, I like I brought up to someone that um and to loosely tie this to what we're saying, I don't think the the DC Looney Tunes and Hanna Barbera things are uh, train wrecks. I think that and they, and they just started a new wave of them uh, this past month uh, with the loose implication that if it continues to go well, it may be like a, a yearly thing that they just put out a couple one shots. Like they have Aquaman and Jabberjaw that came out this year, which is my favorite of them so far. Um, but also like Flash Speed Buggy, where they reveal Reverse Speed Buggy, and uh, like <laughs> which is just. Uh, <laughs> And they also have like Super Sons and Dino Mutt and Black Lightning and Hong Kong Fooey, which wisely plays like a uh, black exploitation kung fu tale, nice. where it's Black Lightning from the '70s in his '70s costume having a '70s black exploitation uh, martial arts narrative with Hong Kong Fooey, where he learns something called the Chaos Fist. Um, nice. <laughs> but yeah, but um. Uh, for people who either like dissecting or like making art, there's roughly a U-shape to uh, enjoyment of art, and this holds pretty much um, across the board, in that while for normal people it would be a gradient of like really bad, messy art than mediocre art, which is the most consumed type of art, because it's also the most generated kind of art. Like That's not, not even necessarily to knock people. It's just there's more mediocre stuff than great stuff just statistically that's how it works um and then great work and people tend to respect if not necessarily engage with great work there's there's that u-shape for anyone who likes digging into or uh or making art where train wreck stuff tends to be a train wreck part uh either due to circumstance or because all the ideas are there, and you can, like, follow the thought of why these things were put next to each other. But they don't... They don't do it. Like, it's... If the parts don't... Don't connect. Or, like, haven't been connected yet. And there's something always fascinating about, like... Shit running totally off the rails. I mean, it's why, like... Uh... Like... A credit to the people who like Mystery Science 3000, or, or that make Mystery Science Theater 3000, if not necessarily all of its fans. They make that show because they love those movies. Hmm. Like, they don't, they may, they're laughing at them and they're, they're poking fun at them, but they, there is a verve to, um, to that kind of bad art. And there's a kind of energy and, thoughts and actions that occur within that that don't occur in more polished art, typically. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's kind of... So we're going up to, like, a minute, uh, hour 40, so let's kind of try and round this off. Um, so, in conclusion, DC Comics, good? Question mark? Yeah, I... 
I'd strongly say that. They're uh they're granted uh they're my uh they're my book of choice. They've also started Yeah, a bun- a bunch of other tales recently that are more on the, the playful cosmic um joy sense. Scott Snyder's been doing a hell of a job. Yeah, he's always been pretty decent. So yeah, for for people like me who kind of fell out of love with comics after the, the grim dark years and the constant reboots, the awful and the corporate shit and oh, yeah, the, the, the movie times and Yeah, movie continuity bleeding into this is more of a Marvel thing really. The movies bleeding into the comics. So suddenly like um Star Lord is the most important character in the world. Civil War Two, yeah. a sequel to the storyline no one liked. Yeah, and Summer Event, um, the stuff that started off with um, Infinite Crisis, that has now become a, a yearly tradition of yeah. just destroying our bank accounts every summer um, by making us buy infinite numbers of tangentially related things, where something terrible will happen that can't be ever undone until next year or one character will do something irredeemably terrible, then you'll kind of have to forgive them for it because they're Miss Marvel or Captain Marvel or whoever. Um, which, as I understand, is the most recent Marvel one where Captain Marvel becomes yeah, awful was... and so on. That was Civil War Two. That yeah. was that was the weirdest, most backwards-ass way to build up for the Captain Marvel movie, but yeah. But uh, yeah, DC Comics, uh, go and like them. Um, but let's round out on by playing something you won't like because it's war metal and you're not supposed to like war metal because that's the whole point it's it's all of the metal genres being played at once it's usually got some dodgy politics which I'm hoping uh, these guys caveman cult from Florida do not have um, it's there's some bands in here like Revenge who are borderline unlistenable because of just the ugliness of their sound. Uh, Caveman Cult I don't think are unlistenable but uh, they're, they're on their way and I like them a lot. So we're going to round out with Caveman Cult and we'll be back next week when we're going to talk about uh, Sisyphean. When it, what would you say about Sisyphean? Because I literally got my copy today. There's like these penisy looking things all over it. Um, and all this illustration in the middle, which is like pencil drawings. And what would you say to get people hyped on Sisyphean? Um, probably the best contemporary foreign sci-fi novel since uh, the, the Three-Body Problem. Uh, which is wow. the Chinese novel the one Hugo. Yeah. Also, if you like uh, the parallel of Lovecraftian body horror and capitalism, oh baby, you're gonna love Sisyphean. Yeah, its just... politics are good. Wow. And it's about uh, office politics. So it kind of ties, I guess, I think based on my reading of the back cover, uh, so I guess it kind of ties into David Graeber's stuff as well. This is like oh yes, it does a bullshit job <laughs> that turns you into a Cronenberg. Um, <laughs> we're going to be using the term Cronenberg as a proper noun quite a bit, even though that's based on uh, a few lines from Rick and Morty. Um, I'm hoping to watch a lot of Rick and Morty just to get my brain up to proper smoothness and largeness to be able to absorb Sisyphean. Uh, 
So, um, <laughs> yeah, come back next week when my brain will be huge and smooth and shining because I've watched a lot of Rick and Morty. And we'll talk about Sisyphean. And it's going to be gross and slimy. But here's some caveman cult. Thank you.